You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. It's really good to be with you today. We're continuing our series in the book of Philippians, which is a book you'll find in the New Testament, the second uh, part of the Bible. So if you have a Bible with you, why don't you turn there now? We're in chapter 1 again. If you've missed the last couple of weeks, let me just help you to catch up. Um, We've been looking at how this was a letter originally written by the Apostle Paul, who was one of the earliest uh, missionaries, Christian missionaries, really. He, he used to hate Jesus. He wanted to oppose Christianity, and Jesus one day met him as he was journeying and uh, revealed himself to him. And Paul really then, after that time, his life was transformed. And instead of opposing Jesus, went around uh, preaching about Jesus and starting churches. And then as he moved from place to place, he would then keep in touch with those churches that he'd started um, by the form of letter. So he is at this point writing to this church in Philippi in Macedonia. And Paul, as we know from the letter, is in prison and had been for some time in Rome. So it's not a good situation for Paul. And last week... Uh, Morris um, was preaching about how life is hard, but God is good. And uh, even in suffering, God can help us to use even difficult times for his good and uh, for his glory, and that we can actually share the good news about Jesus even in difficulty, as we keep in mind the big picture, as we see that actually one day all of this suffering is going to uh, be over, and one day we're going to be with Jesus uh, forever. And that actually Paul had learnt the secret to being content in all circumstances. And we're going to come along uh, to some verses about that in a few weeks' time, about the secret of being content. So today, um, I've called this message the heart of worship, treasuring Christ. And you'll see uh, as we read through these verses together why I've called it that. So why don't we read um, chapter 1, verses 19 through to 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Shall we pray together and just ask God to help us? Father, we love your word. We love this Bible with your truth in it, Lord. And we just pray today that your word will come and impact our hearts afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Paul, already in this letter, has reflected on his past. He's looked at the circumstances that have meant that he's ended up in prison. He's looked at his present. He's looking at the difficult circumstances he's going through and how even in those difficult circumstances, he's using them as an opportunity to show off Jesus and to preach about Jesus. And now he's looking to the future. He's looking ahead of him. And he doesn't really know what is going to come. He doesn't know whether he's going to end up being killed after this prison sentence. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to continue living. He doesn't know any of the circumstances ahead of him. And in the same way, we are un- we're just so completely 
unaware of the circumstances that face us. We don't know what's going to happen this week, let alone this year. We don't know what's going to happen in five years' time. We don't know if we'll even have that long. Like Paul, we are uncertain as to the future. The only thing we can be certain about is that we will one day die. But Paul, even though he wasn't sure of the future, he had resolved something in his heart. He had resolved that his ambition was to make Jesus famous. Even though he couldn't see ahead of him, he couldn't see weeks ahead, let alone months and years ahead, he had an ambition in his heart to make Jesus known, to make Jesus famous. He had resolved that actually the glory of Christ was going to affect every decision that he, had made, that he would make. He saw ahead that Christ, no matter what, Christ was going to be exalted and magnified through everything he said and did. There was no uncertainty in that respect. I want to read to you this quote from uh, Alec Matier. He says, Paul's task, whatever the future turns out to be, is not to carry a snapshot of Christ in his wallet for occasional sharing with chosen people, but to show an enlarged, life-size Christ to all who care to look. A Christ displayed in every dimension and capacity. A Christ magnified in Paul's body. Jesus Christ was Paul's everything. He was the deciding factor in every decision that Paul made. And friends, if we've placed our faith in Jesus, he should be the deciding factor in every choice that we make. He should be the deciding factor. His glory, the glory of Jesus Christ, must be our great and controlling interest. No matter what comes up in our lives, no matter what we're facing, whatever it might be that we face in the years to come, many of us going into new circumstances in our lives, whether it be into retirement or into the workplace or into education or starting parenthood, whatever it might be, the great and controlling interest in our lives must be the glory of Jesus Christ, to make him famous. And more than that, to actually that others will come to treasure him, that others will come to see him for what he is and will come to treasure him. So Paul knows that one thing for certain, his ambition, what he is living for, is the glory of Christ. And I want to say today that the true heart of worship is to seek to glorify, to magnify Christ in all circumstances of life. That is the true heart of worship. We've sung about the heart of worship this morning. And the true heart of worship is to seek to glorify, to magnify Jesus in all circumstances of life. It's not about um, throwing our hands up in the air on a Sunday morning and pumping the air and singing loudly and shouting out for joy, although those things are great and good and right. It's not about 40 minutes of our week. It's about the whole of our lives leading people to see how good Jesus is. In fact, we'd really do well to call what we've just done together today, we do well to call it praise. Because sometimes if we call it worship, we can sometimes think, well, I've done my worship this week. I've worshipped for 40 minutes on a Sunday morning and the rest of my life, well, that's mine. And I'm going to live it as I please. And I'm going to live for my own glory. No, worship is an all of life thing. Worship is a laying down of our lives as living sacrifices. That's what the same guy Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. He said, Offer up your lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, because that is your spiritual act of worship. Actually, the whole of our lives are to be lived out as worship to Jesus. And we point people to him when we experience Jesus as, as satisfying, when we experience Jesus as all-sufficient for every 
day of our lives. That's how we point people to Jesus. When we're genuinely experiencing him as sufficient for us, no matter what we're going through, when we're experiencing him as enough for us, that is how we point people to Jesus. So Paul's life and death, whatever it might be that he was going to face, his mission was to magnify Christ, to show that Jesus was magnificent, to show that Jesus was enough for him, to demonstrate his greatness. And I'm just going to draw out three principles of the heart of worship today that I hope will be helpful for us. The first one is this, the heart of a true worshipper trusts. Let's read together again um, verse 19. I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul's in prison. He's chained to a Roman guard. He wouldn't be able to go to the toilet without this guy watching him. He wouldn't be able to have private conversations. He wouldn't be able to uh, just you know, chill out without being chained to this guy. He's in a pretty dire situation. And is he reflecting here on his physical deliverance? I don't think so, because he's actually talking here about there being a very real chance of him ending up being executed. And we know with hindsight that eventually he was. He was released from this prison spell and uh, was able to go on continuing uh, his mission to much of Europe and Asia. But he doesn't know that at this point. He actually considers that he may well end up being killed. So I don't think he's talking here about physical deliverance here. And actually, uh, if we look at these verses, if we look at this verse again and these words that he uses, what... Uh, he's actually quoting here is Job in chapter 13. Now, I don't know if you know about the story of Job in the Old Testament. It's a huge book in the Old Testament. You'd be hard, it'd be hard to miss it if you're flicking through the Old Testament. It's a book about a guy who suffered a lot. He lost his family. He lost his possessions. Uh, he lost so, so much. And then his friends start to come to him to say, you know, Job, the reason you're going through this is because of sin in your life. The reason you're going through all of this hardship is because you've clearly done something wrong. And Job knows that that's not the case. He knows that actually God will one day vindicate him. One day he will stand before God vindicated because he was a righteous man. And Paul here is quoting Job because he knows that one day there will be a deliverance for him. Whether it's a physical deliverance or not, he doesn't know. But one day, if you remember from the previous weeks, he's got the day of Christ in his mind. He's got the day of Christ in the forefront of his mind. He knows there's a day coming when Jesus will return... And when Paul will be saved, he will be saved forever. He will be vindicated before God. He knows that he will one day stand before God. And even though he'd done some horrendous things in his life, he had been forgiven. And he knows that he will one day stand before God delivered. And that every experience between that point and that day is actually God, as I shared in the first message in this series, it's actually God putting the finishing touches to us ready for that day. That Paul would understand every uh, experience, whether good or bad, as God working through them to put the finishing touches to him, to make him more like Jesus ahead of the final day when Jesus will return. So Paul knew, he didn't know whether he'd be vindicated before Caesar or not. He didn't know whether or not he'd be freed. He knew that one day before God, he would be counted righteous and would be saved. God's working on us. And the heart of a true worshipper sees that even in the difficult circumstances of life, that God is working on our character. It's, the heart of a true worshipper trusts that even in the hard times, God is about something that is good. 
It's not about just in the 40 minutes on a Sunday morning as we're praising and maybe sometimes hearing testimonies of God's goodness. It's not about just in those times believing that God is about something good and trusting in just that 40 minutes. Actually beyond here and going into our lives and the daily reality of our lives, even when we're hit with bad news, even when we're kind of, we've had a tough day at work, even when things are not easy in the, uh, in the house or with our friends, or whatever it might be, we trust that he is about something good. We trust that ultimately he knows what he's doing. We must understand his character. We must understand the heart of our God. To, to understand what he's like, we need to be in his word. We need to understand that he is, first and foremost, he's a father. Before anything existed, he was a father. He had his son who he loved from eternity past. He, first and foremost, is a father. That's his primary identity. And we, we have to understand this, that he is a father and that he loves us. He really does love us. We must, and if we're to trust him, if we're to trust him beyond Sunday mornings, we must, must, must remind ourselves of this truth, that he is our father, that he's a good father. And more than that, he is a sovereign father. We, Jesus taught his friends to pray, our father in heaven. That's significant. It's significant that we understand that because God is not solely our father and that he, it's not just that he loves us. He's in heaven, so he's able to do all things. He's in, he's in complete control. When I talk about God's sovereignty, I don't want you to start thinking, oh, do we have free will and all these kind of philosophical questions that really lead to not a lot of good in my opinion. I'm talking about God being in control here that he's able to work through the circumstances of your life. He's able to work through the circumstances of history for our good and his glory. Romans chapter 12, uh, Romans chapter 8, I should say. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. God is large and in charge. So we trust him. We trust that we're able to know that he is doing a good work in us even when things don't seem like he is doing that. Even like for Paul, as he looked at his chains in prison and thought, actually, what is God up to here? He's able to trust. He's able to say, I know that what is happening to me will turn out for my deliverance. I know that Jesus is doing a work in my life. I know that he's doing this. I can trust that he is. So, the heart of the true worshipper trusts. Secondly, the heart of the true worshipper is about one thing. Let's read uh, 20 and 21 together. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. They're very famous verses. And the word there that Paul uses to to say honoured, it could easily be translated magnified. It's uh, in the Greek, if you're interested. The New Testament was originally written in uh, Greek. And the Greek is megalino, which is to magnify. So Christ, Paul's desire would, was that Christ would be magnified in his body. That's the one thing on the mind of the heart of the true worshipper, to magnify Jesus. The psalmist, you'll see, as you read the Psalms, often the psalmist will say things like this. Come and magnify 
the Lord with me. Come and magnify him with me. Let's magnify God. Now, there's two kinds of magnifying. There's what you do with a microscope and what you do with a telescope. One makes a small thing looks a lot bigger than it is, and one makes a very big thing begin to look as big as it really is. Now, we are to be telescopes, not microscopes. The whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this. Feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. I'm going to say that again just to get that into our minds. Feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. I love this quote from John Piper. I'm going to quote him a couple more times today just because he's an excellent writer. He says, Be a telescope for the world of the infinite starry wealth of the glory of God. Even in death, Paul's goal was to glorify God. It's not limited just to life. It's the way we die. It's possible to die in a way that will glorify God. It's possible to die in a way that will point people to the fact that we find Jesus to be the greatest thing that this whole life and universe can offer. It's even possible in death. And I love the way uh, that Paul talks about death. He calls it departing to be with Christ. This word depart, again, in the Greek is analusis, which really means to set sail or to um, decamp. It means to kind of you know, take down your camp and to move on. Death for the Christian is the end of what was at best a transitory thing. It was a camp life in which we travel about without a permanent home. That was the reality for Paul. He described his body as an earthly tent. And as he reflected on what death would mean for him, it was just like taking down your tent. We're going now to a permanent place. When you go camping, especially if it's tipped it down all week, which invariably happens in this country, it's a relief, isn't it? When you take down your tent, you say, I'm going now to my permanent home. In reality, for us, we don't have a permanent home here. We take down our tent of this life and we go to our heavenly home, not made by earthly hands, but an eternal home made by God himself. We read that in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. We have a temporary home here. We're looking forward to a permanent home in heaven. So preservation or extension of our physical earthly life isn't the main deal. It's not what we're living to do. It's to glorify God in every circumstance of life. It's not just praying and praising, not supposedly uh, spiritual things. That probably takes up 5% of our week. God intends for us to be able to glorify him, to point people to him, to show how great he is, to magnify him in everything. Whether you're eating or drinking, do it all for the glory of God. That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. So we exalt, we honour, we magnify Christ in all that we do. That's the heart of worship. It's not just singing uh, songs together here on Sunday that Christ is our treasure, that he's our reward, that we love him and we're living for him. And then the rest of the week, treasuring everything else and showing that actually we're living for everything else except for Christ. That is not true worship. The heart of true worship is about one thing. There's so many other things that we could live for, isn't there? There's so many other things that we could um, go after in this life. But Paul's prayer, Paul's hope, his desire was to live only for Jesus. We could exalt ourselves. We could, uh, through um, making ourselves look good, through you know, beefing up or putting on makeup or whatever it might be, we could look to draw people's attention to us and to our bodies. 
We can live our lives seeking out our own security and sometimes people overwork to simply get more and more money so they can be more and more comfortable and more and more supposedly secure. We can do that with our lives. We can, we can look to, to get popularity, to get as many people as possible to like us, to think highly of us. There's many things we can do with our bodies. I'm not dismissing riches. I'm not dismissing work. I'm not dismissing uh, being liked by people. That's, no, that's fine. But do people see in our lives, a, do they see in our lives Christ magnified? Or do they see in our lives us trying to magnify ourselves? What do they see in our lives? I'm sure that if you spent a day with Paul, you'd get what he was about. You'd get what he was about. He probably wasn't a very impressive guy, there's a hilarious story in Acts where he's preaching and his preaching was so boring that a guy who's sitting in the window falls asleep and he falls out of the window and dies, <laughs> which is pretty grim. And then Paul and his mates go and pray for him and he comes back to life. And, uh, you know, Paul probably wasn't a very impressive guy. To look at him, it probably wasn't like, he probably, in our worldly um, lenses, he probably wasn't very impressive. And yet I'm sure that if you spent a day with him, you would soon suss out what he was all about. He was all about Jesus. Now, we can live our lives for many, many other things. We can live our lives to see people glorify us in some way. But God's desire is that we glorify him with everything. That might sound egotistical to you. It might sound like God is kind of quite demanding and quite needy. You know, the, the fact that God desires more than anything else that we glorify him is the best news. It's the best news because he actually knows what's best for us. He knows that actually he alone satisfies and that nothing else that the world can offer really satisfies. We will just be wanting more. We'll just be striving for more. But actually God knows that he alone satisfies. And his desire for his own glory has led to him sending his son to sending Jesus so that he would live the perfect life that we couldn't live, that he would die on the cross, the death that we deserve, that he would rise again victorious three days later. It was God's desire for his own glory that led to him sending Jesus to be our saviour. So it's, a good, it's good news for us that God is passionate about his own glory. So his, his zeal for his own glory should lead to our zeal for his glory. I want to read to you this quote from J.C. Ryle. A zealous man is primarily a man of one thing. It's not enough to say that he's wholehearted or fervent in spirit. He only sees one thing. He cares only for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or dies whether he has health or sickness, whether rich or poor, whether he pleases man or causes offence, whether he is thought wise or foolish, or whether he gets blame or praise, whether he gets honour or shame, for all this the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. I want to be like that. Do you want to be like that? To burn for one thing to please God and to advance his glory. 
when we understand that our acceptance, when we understand that our significance and our security is complete in Jesus Christ, we're freed to live for God's glory. When you understand that actually the acceptance of the, the one person who really counts is now yours because of Jesus, when you understand that the security that we all need to feel is now ours in Jesus Christ, when you understand that the significance is now, we're, we're significant because we're sons and daughters of God, when you understand that, you're freed to live not for your own glory, but for God's glory. It frees us. Paul was able to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How could he say that? Well, simply this, he treasured Christ more than anything else in the world. He saw Christ as ultimately valuable. And that leads me to the third point, that is, is that the heart of the true worshipper treasures Christ. Paul saw knowing Jesus of being of all surpassing worth. That's to say that all of the riches and the power and the pleasure cannot compare to knowing Jesus. The gaining of Christ to Paul was worth the loss of all things, including those things that he previously counted as gain. So Paul was once a religious zealot in the Jewish community, and he had a lot of respect. People respected him highly. He would have got the, uh, the greetings in the street as he walked along. People would have really spoken well of him. He had a lot of power, actually, as well, as one of the Pharisees. He was a guy who really had it together in a worldly sense. And he is able to reflect later on in Philippians that everything that I thought was gain for me, I now count it as loss compared to knowing Jesus. All that I once thought was really, really good, actually compared to knowing Jesus, it's, it's really nothing. It's really nothing whatsoever. Being with Jesus is far better. That's how Paul was able to say, my desire is to be with Christ. When he was reflecting on whether or not he was going to, whether he was going to continue living or whether he was going to end up being killed, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. How could he say that? He knew that the greatest thing about heaven was Jesus Christ himself. Again, a quote from John Piper, the critical question for our generation is this. If you could have heaven, let's ask ourselves this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food that you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties that you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or natural disasters, if you had all of that, could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus was not there? Could you be satisfied with it if Jesus was not there? The answer for Paul would have been no. I would not be satisfied with all that if Jesus wasn't there. I would not be satisfied. For Paul, the benefits of heaven, the resurrection of our bodies, the, the creation being made new and without conflict and sickness and everything else that would come with it, that was nothing. It was worth nothing if it wasn't about being with Jesus, if it wasn't about seeing and beholding Jesus. This was the man that Paul once hated. This is the man that Paul once opposed in, with every ounce of his being. And now he was able to say, actually, to be with Jesus is far better than living. To be with Jesus is far better than even going on living. Jesus is the pearl of great price. 
He's the pearl of great price. That Jesus told a story about this, that a man saw this pearl of great price and went away and sold everything he had in order to buy it. Jesus is the pearl of great price. Knowing him is far better than anything else. Believe me, it's, it's far better than knowing anything else in this life. Whatever it is that you're running after, whatever it is that ultimately you're about, whatever it is that you think, if I just had that one thing, I would be happy. If I just had that one thing, then I'd be satisfied. Jesus is far better than that thing. He is far better. Knowing him now in this life and knowing him for eternity is far better. Now, of course, we get to be with Jesus now. Of course, we get to enjoy his presence now. But when we're in eternity, that will be intensified and will be so, it will be far more glorious even than now, what we're able to experience now. And that one thing that you might have thought about just a minute ago, that one thing that you think will make you ultimately happy, there you'll be in eternity. I don't know, walking with Jesus, I don't know, playing golf with him, whatever it is that you, you, know, you might do in heaven. And you'll, you'll just have this faint memory of that one thing that you really thought would make you happy. And you'll think, man, this is so, so much better. That house that I really thought would make me happy with the big garden and the nice kitchen or that relationship that I just thought I had to have even though I knew it wasn't right or whatever it might be that you're striving after right now. You'll, you'll, you'll be with Jesus in eternity and you'll think, man, this is so, so much better. That thing just pales into insignificance compared to being with Jesus. That's our hope. Our hope is that we will be with him, and when we see him, we'll be like him. We'll be like him. We'll no longer be struggling with all the things we struggle with. The early disciples, those who had walked with Jesus, they, they just so loved being with him. It really pained them. They were distraught when Jesus would talk about his impending death. Is it any wonder that these disciples parted with their possessions easily? Is it any wonder that they were just so ready to share with others what they had? Is it any wonder that they were so willing to lay down their own reputation because they had seen and tasted something that was far better? They had seen and tasted something that was far better than possessions and reputation. Friends, the closer we get to Jesus by his Holy Spirit, in prayer and in praise and in his word, the closer we get to him, the, the less we will hold on tightly to our sense of, I need people to like me, or I need to have this stuff because it makes me feel secure. And we'll obey him and we'll live for his glory because we'll see ultimately that he is worthy of it. Again, one more uh, quote from John Piper. People who would be happy in heaven if Christ was not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If you don't want God above all things, you have not been converted by the gospel. The gospel is not a ticket to heaven. It's a, it's a way to get people to God. The gospel, this good news of Jesus coming to earth and taking our place on the cross, removing our sin and shame, it's a way to get us to God, to get to know him. 
so that we can be in relationship with him. Only, only life with God can satisfy our hearts and minds. Michael Reeve says this, no eternal life and no paradise could satisfy the hearts and minds of those who know Jesus if it meant we could not have him. So the heart of the true worshipper sees the value of Christ, sees the value of Christ as being far better than anything else that we could chase after in this life. And everything else takes its, its rightful place behind that. None of these things that I've mentioned are bad things. None of these things that we could go after. Some are bad things, of course. But what it might, whatever it might be, it might not necessarily be a bad thing. But it could become an ultimate thing. And we had a word during the worship time about throwing off. We can throw off sin that entangles us. But we can throw off other things that aren't sinful that weigh us down. And this morning is our prayer response in just a moment. Uh, in a couple of minutes' time, we're going to worship, praise, sing, magnify God together. And there'll be people who will be willing to pray with you at the back of the room. And there might be, for some here today, there might be some people thinking, I just need to throw off something here that I've been running after and chasing after that I know is not what God would want for me. I know it's getting in the way of me living for God's glory. I know it's getting in the way and I'm ultimately living for my glory, or my significance and acceptance and security. So my challenge to us is, are we treasuring Jesus? Are we treasuring him? Are we going hard after him? We, I'm sure we, we cannot sing about the heart of worship here today and say, I'm coming back to the heart of worship when it's all about you. And then the very next day, go after anything and everything that is not Jesus. We can't do that. It's, it's hypocrisy. It's lukewarmness. Lukewarmness is not what God would have for us. He wants us to be red hot zealots for him, for his glory, that we would magnify him, that through our lives and through us experiencing Jesus as altogether satisfying, that people will see within us, God is really great. Are you treasuring Jesus? Are you, are you, you know, when we treasure something, we, we block out things, don't we, so that we can get that one thing. When we, if we treasure football, well, you know, the diary gets cleared for that big match that's coming up. If we treasure, if we treasure looking good and fashionable, well, the budget gets altered so that we can buy some more clothes. We treasure other things. Ultimately, we're to treasure Jesus. And so everything else in this life then takes its rightful place behind us treasuring him. Are we doing that? Are we making time to be with him? Are we showing through our everyday life that he is great? I just want to offer a response for anyone who right now you would say, I'm not a Christian. I've not placed my faith in Jesus, but I want to today. I want to say to him today, Jesus, I'm living for you. I want to say to him today, Jesus, it's all about you. I'm not living for my own glory anymore. I'm living for you. If that's you today, as I pray in a moment, uh, I'll pray some words and I'll just encourage you to pray them along with me in your heart. And if you've done that today, please, please tell someone. Please tell someone. Let's just quiet in our hearts before God. Father, 
Father, thank you so much that you have shown us such great mercy. Lord, you, you showed great mercy to the Apostle Paul, a guy who was breathing out murderous threats against your people, who was uh, looking on as your people were executed and beaten. Uh, Father, you showed him such mercy and you've shown us such mercy as well. You've shown us great mercy in our lives. So we've, we've gone after other things. We've sought to glorify ourselves. We've sought to point people to us. We've gone after other things that we thought would satisfy. We've gone after other things that we thought would really, really fulfill us. <laughs> and we've come to find, well, they really don't. We want to thank you for showing us mercy. Thank you that you sent Jesus, Father. Thank you that Jesus came so that we could be liberated from all that we've done wrong, so that we could be truly forgiven, so that we could know the acceptance of our Heavenly Father, so that we could know that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. I want to thank you, Father, that you've shown us such grace and mercy. And in view of your mercy, we simply want to say, Father God, we are living to magnify you. We're living to glorify you. We're living so that people would see how great you really are. Let us be telescopes that speak of your infinite worth, Father. In every day of our lives, we don't want to simply sing songs here and go away and live for other things. We want to in every single day of our lives, in our workplaces, in our family life, in our uh, friendship groups, in our places of study, we want to glorify and magnify the name of Jesus Christ. And maybe this morning you want to give your life to Jesus. Why don't you pray something like this in your heart? God, I want to know you. God, I want to be forgiven. I want to have this freedom from everything that I've done wrong. I want to know my guilt removed. Forgive me, God. Come and change my life. Thank you that Jesus has made a way. Thank you that I can now know fullness of life because of Jesus. If you've prayed that prayer or something like it in your mind or heart just now, please do speak to someone. Please do share that with someone this morning and to, to just really maybe just ask someone to pray with you later as well. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.